Galatians chapter 4, and we'll begin reading at verse 4 and move to 7. Galatians 4, 4 through 7. Paul says this, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Let us pray. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. And we pray now that You would bless this reading of Your Word to our hearts. Bless the preaching and our response to You. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Jesus has appeared. He has been made manifested in the flesh. As our sermon title is, Manifested in the Flesh. Jesus has come. It is what the good news is all about. And it's what Epiphany speaks to us about. Have you ever been talking about something and it actually occurred? Uh, The boys, for some reason, have been... uh, This may not be the best way to start a sermon, but the boys have been very gaseous, as I call it, uh, recently. And I was telling Jessica, I I said, what what is wrong with it? It seems like... And it happened. It appeared right before us. Yes, you manifested one right before us, Bo. And, you know, it's like, okay, no more words need to be said when something is manifested. Uh, There's nothing else that needs to be said. This is what the coming of Jesus is somewhat like. Now, it's better than breaking wind, of course, but it is the wind that He brings who is the Spirit of God that matters in our own hearts. This Spirit who saves us, who sanctifies us. He has appeared. He has been made manifest. Listen, I have four kids. Uh, It's what we do around the house. And I try to be as natural as I can in any state, whether I'm teaching or lecturing or preaching. Uh, So forgive me that uh, there's a lot of testosterone and a lot of other things that go along in our house. You know, Jesus has been made manifest. And there's nothing else that needs to be said. You know, as as humans, we always, and and this always comes up uh, in class, in particular as I teach class at Calhoun, but it comes up in our minds as well as this. People wonder, what about people who have never heard of Jesus? You know, what, what about them? What about people who have never heard the gospel of God? What is God going to do with them at the end of time? But I think the more pressing question upon us is not what is God going to do with people who have never heard, but rather, what about us who have heard? What is God going to do with us who have the gospel of Jesus Christ? Because what the Scripture says very clearly, Jesus says it in Luke, He says, to whom much has been given, much will be required. That's always kind of haunted me as someone who grew up in church, as a pastor's kid, and now is in the church as well. I've been given much in my life. This doesn't just mean monetarily. Jessica and I often... uh, Think of, she reads uh, old books, 
Oh, not old books. She reads new books that are about old times, okay? She likes to, you know, kind of dream about, uh, if you will, you know, the Victorian age in England. Uh, she likes to think about the Quakers, and she wonders if she would like living that kind of life, and I often remind her, no, you wouldn't, babe. You, you would not, because they lived a very different life than we live. They're not able to control the thermostat. They're not able to drive 30 miles today. A 30-mile you know, journey would be perilous for many of them. Uh, we live today better than kings lived in Jesus' time. That's middle class. That's lower middle class. We can do more with a phone than they ever dreamed about possible. They would look at us as the greatest wizard, witch, warlock that they've ever seen if they realized what we can do with our phone. Just our phone. Much less with our cars and planes and trains and every other kind of technological advance that we've done. And we live in a world where we've been given much. We didn't invent these things ourselves, but rather they've been given to us. And I guess the question still rings out true for me as it is for you. What about us? What about us who have access to the gospel? What about us who we don't have to cower in a room this morning in fear of being arrested, in fear of losing our job because we're a Christian, like they do in China, like they do in places of India, in places in Africa? No, we're free. So we can daydream all day long about what might happen to those who don't know, but what about those who do know? You see, He's been made manifest. He's appeared. He has been revealed in the flesh. That's what Paul is talking about here in Galatians. Notice how he begins, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son. You know, this phrase, fullness of time, actually occurs several times in the Scripture. It means at the exact right time. Exactly when God planned it, this came about. So when Jesus comes in the flesh, that was God's plan from the beginning. It was His plan before we ever even failed in the garden, was to send forth His only begotten Son. Begotten of the Father, not made. As this Nicene Creed uh, we just recited. Not made. Jesus is not some kind of uh, new creature on the block. Jesus takes on a body, God the Son takes on a body in Jesus Christ. The body's what's new. God has been around for eternity. The Son of God has always existed. And this Son of God, this second person of the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, He comes to become one of us. And He appears in the flesh, not only to the Jews, the chosen people, but instead to all people. And this is what Epiphany is about. It's what the appearing is all about. In the fullness of time is exactly God's right timing. And historically, we know it was... Really, you couldn't have gotten any better than the first century. Notice that Rome was in charge, which they weren't the nicest nation in the world, but there was what is called, and you may remember from your history classes, Pax Romana, Latin for the Roman peace. 
The Roman peace was not that Rome was peaceful, but instead that they restored order to the whole world because they ruled over the whole world. So there was no world war going on. You know, you can't really do much traveling when there's a world war going on. You're not free to. Here, you can travel freely. Not only that, the phrase will ring true in your head when I say it is, all roads lead to Rome. What does that mean? It means they had the greatest road system in the world. We know that. Up to that point. They had the major interstates and highways and they had cleared them of villains, which was, that was new in the ancient world. Not only that, there was a universal language which was Koine Greek. We also have a saying for that. It's Greek to me, which I still say even though I took two years of Greek. Some of it is just still Greek to me. I have no idea what they're doing. It's a very technical language and yet it was the language of the world because of Alexander the Great. He Hellenized the entire world. He culturized it. That's why we talk when you go to history classes, they talk about the Roman world. They have to talk about the Greco-Roman world. World, Because Rome could never get the Greco-ness, so to speak, out of it. They couldn't. They were Hellenized. You say, well, what does all that mean? How does, that, how does history tie? History ties in because there was no better way for the gospel to be spread than when there was no world war. There were no big battles going on between kingdoms. There were free roads to travel. And there was a universal language, which the Bible could be written in, which all educated people would have been able to read. And so the gospel goes forth in Greek. That's what our New Testament is actually written in. Not in King James English, contrary to what some would believe. But instead Koine Greek. At exactly the right time, God sent forth His Son to be born of a woman. Notice What is said, He sent forth His Son. As we've already established, God the Son has always existed. That's why Jesus, when when He's teaching in the temple, is able to say, Before Abraham was, I am. I existed before Abraham. And remember, Abraham is the father of the faith of Judaism. And Jesus says, right, before Him... I existed. And they're scratching their head. Who's this guy claiming to be? He's claiming to be God. In the flesh. Who would have thunk it, so to speak, in past tense? That God would become one of us. Not just appear as... Look, there's other gods and other religions that appear human. They don't take on humanity. That, That would be a reduction of their nature. So, for instance, in Hinduism, uh, Arjuna is really Krishna. But Krishna is actually Vishnu, the preserver. And so Vishnu takes on an incarnation of Krishna in Arjuna, who is a charioteer. And he talks with uh, another fellow, uh, and that's where you get the Bhagavad Gita from. Yeah, I I didn't sneeze. It was actually, that's actually what they call it, Bhagavad Gita. Uh, It probably sounds like some of you when you sneeze, but nonetheless... Uh, It's a short poem, short in some respects. Listen, God did not just appear in the flesh. He actually took on flesh for all time. 
He became one of us. One of the readings this morning speaks of that wonder, that mystery from Ephesians. The mystery of Christ becoming one of us. He doesn't just save us with the wave of His wand, but rather saves us with His person. That's why we're able to speak of salvation as something personal. Salvation must be something personal because salvation is a person, not an idea. God didn't introduce an idea into the world. That, look, Jesus never wrote anything except for something in the sand that we don't even have. Obviously, He would have been the greatest author. Obviously, He would have been the greatest philosopher, the greatest orator, and yet He never wrote a speech that we have. We only have it recollected here from disciples. He knew we'd worship it. If we ever had anything that was written by Jesus, we would put it up here and we'd worship it. It's what we do as humans. If we find a relic, we worship it. But instead, He gives us a divine and human book that is not Him, but points to Him. The Bible is not divine. Or else we could sit it up here and worship it. But rather, Jesus is divine and His Word points to Him. God sent forth His Son. This Son was born of woman. That's what the Scripture says here. It doesn't mention Mary, but we know woman here is Mary. And, and remember, woman refers back not only to Mary, but to Eve. Mary, as we've talked about, is the new Eve. Just as Jesus is the new Adam, the last Adam, that the Adam who did things right, didn't get it wrong, and, and therefore secured salvation for us, so too, Mary is the new Eve, who instead of disobeying, obeys. Instead of hiding, embraces God and obeys and therefore secure salvation in her womb. <laughs> She's carrying God. What a mystery. What a sanctity to birth, gestation, conception. Born of woman at just the right time. And you know, when He was born... You say, how important is Jesus' birth? I mean, we've been talking about it since Advent. How much longer, Marshall, are you going to talk about His birth? Well, even human history finds His birth important enough to date everything from that date. <clears throat> so when I say, you know, I was born in 1981, which I was. In April, I'll be 32. I'm saying I was born 1,981 years after Jesus' birth. My coffin, my gravestone, whatever that date may be, 
2,000 and something. I won't ever make it to 2100s, but 2,000 and something will be how many years away from Christ's birth I am. The emperors that Jesus was born under, the kings that ruled in His day, their dates are calculated by His date. His birth splits time for us between before He was born and after He was born. And what the new scholars are doing is using a a BCE and a CE. Common era. But you have to still ask the question, why stop there? Why split it there? Before what common era? Before His coming. You can't get around it. See, the reality is, is His signs are everywhere. And yet, we choose to ignore Him. See, it's not a thing of, oh, well, if God has mercy upon those who never hear, then surely He'll have mercy upon me who is lazy. Me who ignores. Me who is apathetic. Slothful. And I would remind you again, to whom much has been given, much is required. What does Spider-Man say? With great responsibility. Power. Yes. I don't watch Spider-Man a lot, okay? Give me a break. With great power comes great responsibility. We're some of the most powerful people in the world as Americans. Move to another country, go visit another country, and you'll learn very quickly how good we have it, even in our bad times. We are what the Bible would call rich. And I'm speaking from a lower middle class position. We're rich. And the Bible says... How difficult is it for the rich to enter into the kingdom of heaven? When we can do everything ourselves, when we can have practically everything we want, we don't need God. As my professor used to say, we don't need God because we have Walmart. It supplies all my needs according to my pocketbook. And that's the danger. When we can supply our needs, we don't need God. That's why we struggle in our secular America to even find a place for God. Where does He really fit? Maybe when I'm going through some bad trial or through a crisis, but in normal times, I've got this. I can handle this myself. And we sound like my kid who acts like he can do everything for himself as he spills water all over the floor. Daddy, I'm getting you some water. Thank you, son. Oh, great. Now you've created more work for me. Isn't that how our lives normally go? We say, oh, no, no, God, I, I got this now. Don't worry about it. Do it myself, myself, myself. And we create a mess. We create a royal mess. 
God sent His Son, born of woman and born under the law. What law? Both the natural law, as Paul speaks about in Romans 1, the law that when we look at creation, we intuitively know there is a God. That natural law that tells us that it's not right to kill children. Nobody finds that good. After the tragedy in Connecticut, wasn't it Connecticut? Yes. I started thinking, you know, even the mob has a problem with that. I mean, hardened, organized crime has a problem with killing children. You go to prison and you're a baby killer, it's not going to turn out good for you. This is prison. Think about it. There's a moral code that flows through our nature. Notice what the mob even calls themselves. A family. Why? Because in order for an organization to work, you have to trust one another. You can't lie to one another. You can lie outside of that and maybe do fine. At least for them it worked for a while. But they call themselves a family. Natural law, but also the Mosaic law. The law that was given to Moses. And Jesus didn't break either one of those. He lived a sinless, perfect life which no one can do. No one has done. You know, it's been often said, if Adam and Eve wouldn't have eaten the fruit, I would have. We all have. We've all taken of the forbidden We've all tried to do our own thing. We've all, we've all taken ourselves and put ourselves in the place of God, which is idolatry at the heart. We have made ourselves into a God. Then Paul says, not only has God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born of the law, but instead to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as of sons. You see... As Paul says here, you are, notice that in verse 6, children of God. You are children of God. You are sons of God. And that means something. That means that God is your Father. That He must reprove you. He must get on to you. He must correct you. You are not... You're not your, your father is not the devil unless you do the works of the devil. As I've said before, I'm very uncomfortable coming up to somebody and saying, your father is Satan. It's probably not the best way to witness to people. Not a good conversation starter. And yet the Bible is very clear, if your works are evil, then you only do the works of your father who is Satan, who is the devil. But Paul says, no, for those who are redeemed, for those who know that Jesus has been manifested in the flesh and believe on Him, they are not children of Satan, but instead children of the Father in heaven. Notice, the, notice I, I love this as a theologian, the, the Trinitarian language here. God, verse 6, has sent the Spirit of His Son, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, 
God has sent the Spirit again, as I mentioned at the beginning, of His Son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. He is our Father now. We can call God our Father. Personally addressed. You know, praying again, as I said last week, praying is not some formality. The best kind of praying, the most effective kind of praying is praying from the heart. You know, am I going to run to help if Jackson recites something for me? Daddy, I would like for you to help me play this game. No, son, I don't have time to play a game right now. Even though I try to make time with him. His, his new game's kind of fun. Batman. That's why I got Spider-Man mixed up. He's kind of an afterthought once you do Batman. No, the kind of cry that I come running to is a cry for help. As a parent, you know the difference between a whiny cry and a true help cry. God does too. We're His children. The best kind of prayer that you can offer is a God-honest cry for help. If you don't know what to do in your life, if you're lost in your life, if you need God's touch or renewal in your life, cry to Him from a true heart. Don't come to God like we often come to church or come to other things and pretend. Bear yourself to Him. It's the only way to receive His life is to be honest and real. You know, I don't want Jackson to ever have to be fake around me. Even when he's done something very wrong, I want him to be able to come to me for help. I've always had that kind of relationship with my dad. No matter what I've done, I can go to him. And I know that he will help me. Jesus is the same way. Our Heavenly Father is the same way. And the Spirit within us can cry out in words that we don't even have, Paul says in Romans 8. When we don't know what to pray, He prays for us. Just think next time you're praying tonight when you lay your head down and say your prayers, think to yourself, I'm not the only one praying here. The Spirit's praying, Jesus is praying, and my Heavenly Father is reacting to those prayers. What a thought. What a mystery of our faith. And what a reality. Lastly, we're not only adopted into a family, this divine family, but we're also adopted into the church. And we are no longer slaves of sin, but instead heirs of eternal life. Heirs of the kingdom of God itself. Everything that He has, He wants to offer to us. I don't know if you've ever had a rich friend or not. But it's kind of nice to have a rich friend. You get benefits from that, right? Imagine being a part or adopted into a rich family. And then stop thinking about material goods and start thinking about the riches that we have in Jesus Christ. He 
He alone saves. And He's been made manifest. Just as we're talking about it today, it happens and you say, wow, there He is. So what are you going to do if you're no longer a slave of sin, walk with Jesus? If you've been given this information, if you know who He is, do you know Him? There's a difference in knowing about God and knowing Him. Is there sin that is in your life that God's finger is upon Let me tell you, He can deal with it. His riches, His bounty is endless. His power to destroy the works of the devil is strong. Stronger than our sin. Go to Him. Ask for forgiveness. Ask to be set apart. To be cleansed. There's two things that that constantly uh, David in his penitential psalm repeats, and that is, forgive me, O Lord, and cleanse me. He doesn't want to do it again. We like to be forgiven, but oftentimes we like to continue in our wickedness. Today, Jesus is offering a way out. If you're lost, He's offering to be your guide. He's appeared. It's what we celebrate in Epiphany. He has come in the flesh. But has He come to your heart? Because it's not good enough to know that He did appear in the flesh. He has to appear here. What Paul says, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts. Into our soul. Into the control center of who we are. So has He appeared in your heart? Does He appear in your works from week to week? In the way you love your wife? In the way you discipline and love your children? In the way you treat your co-workers? Does He appear there? Or is that you? We often speak of our spouses as helping us. What about our spouse in heaven? Does He ever help us? Do we ever allow Him to? We often talk about keeping our wife happy or our husband happy, but what about Jesus happy? Jesus is easy to please and hard to satisfy. He's not going to stop working on you until you're perfect. That's your destiny. You're going to be a beautiful creation. And in His eyes, you already are. Do you know Him? Do you know that He's going to be manifest one day as the King of Kings? So He has been made manifest. He must be manifest in our own hearts And He will be one day manifested to all. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. 
Is He Lord now? He can be. That's the good news we celebrate. Amen. Our response time...